Let's go, shall we, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We Last week we took a step back. Uh, we looked in Acts chapter 3 uh, about what we call the re-offer, as it were, of the kingdom in uh, at the end of Acts chapter 3 there. Previously we had looked in Acts chapter 13 where we'd had a, a recital uh, from Paul in his first speech about the history of Israel up to that point. But now in the book of Acts, we need to concentrate not on Israel, but on the church. Because the church began in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit descended and people were uh, filled with the Spirit and uh, different passages in Acts and in the, the Gospels tell us that that is when the church began. But we need to, if we're going to get the covenant plan of God right and the story of the Bible right, we need to be able to distinguish the church from Israel that we've been speaking about. Uh, people who are Jews today need to get saved need to trust in Jesus and acknowledge that he is their Messiah, and when they do, they are included within the church, which, as we will see, is the body of Christ. That does not mean, though, that there is not a future for the nation of Israel. Now, I'm not talking about the the rights and wrongs of the political situation over in the Middle East, and it's getting really pretty hot over there and uh, needs to be prayed for. But I'm not talking about anything to do with the political scene today. I'm talking here about the covenant promises of God to the nation of Israel who are right now in rebellion to God. But one day they will, as a people, acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ and they will be saved en masse. And in the kingdom, all of the covenant promises in the different covenants that are spoken of up there, will come to pass when they will be fulfilled on Israel, just as God said. But what about the church? You know, the church, um, it's an interesting subject. When you're reading through the Bible, it's like once you get uh, from the call of Abraham through into, well, most of the Gospels, it's Israel, 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 with the Gentiles thrown in and kind of on the sides there. There are promises for the Gentiles too. But it's very Israel-centered, isn't it? And then all of a sudden, Christ is crucified, Christ rises again, the Holy Spirit descends, and we have the church. So what's going on? What is God doing? As God decided, well, this, you know, Israel have had long enough to get it right, and they just can't get it right, so we'll just, here's plan B. Plan B is the church. That's how it's often presented, unfortunately, in many Christian churches. And it is a sad, uh, fact that, uh, the church has often acted 
and taught in such a way that it believes that it has taken over the promises of God to Israel and the church is now, in fact, the new Israel. This is taught in many seminaries, in many churches. It has been taught down through the ages and it is a very destructive doctrine. It's a false doctrine too. That doesn't mean that the people that have uh, taught it are unspiritual or bad people, not uh, God-fearing people. It just means that they've bought into a way of interpreting the Bible that is incorrect. And some of you might be thinking, ah, well, just there, you see, I see the problem. The Bible can be interpreted any way that you want it to. To which I would reply, of course it can. Of course it can. So can your birth certificate. So can the American Constitution. So can anything. I mean, you can interpret anything the way that you want to do it, can't you? But that doesn't mean the words on the page don't actually mean things. You might try and make them mean something else. For example, in many English classes and, and college classes of literature, Shakespeare's plays are, are pulled apart to see, you know, what he's really meaning to say here. And the actual things that he's saying are forgotten. Well, we can do that with the Bible. If we're not careful, we can be foolish. Remember what I was saying to the kids? We can be foolish in not heeding what God is actually saying. Now, folks, God is the author of language. He knows how to say something. And when we're talking about the covenants of God, you don't just kind of cobble together a covenant uh, without thinking about it. You don't make an oath to do something without saying, okay, what is it that I'm making an oath for to do? You think carefully about the words that you're going to put in that oath, don't you? Unless you're foolish. Well, I think we can safely say that God is not foolish. So anything that God says in an oath and in a covenant, he's going to do. Because he's obliging himself, he's obligating himself to do it. Let me quickly take you to Hebrews chapter 6 to kind of drive this home. Hebrews chapter 6. This is speaking about the Abrahamic covenant, but it's it's true of all covenants. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Here's the text. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end to all dispute. An end to all dispute. Well, how can it be an end to all dispute if it's ambiguous? How can it be an end to all uh, dispute if it doesn't mean what it says? 
You see, oaths have got to mean what they say. And the person swearing the oath has got to mean what they're swearing to do. So when God makes covenants, he's swearing by himself to do them, to perform them. Which means that if you examine and study those covenants, and we've tried to do that in this series, we can have sure knowledge Not of everything that God's going to do, but what God's going to do in those covenants. So God said in the very first covenant in the Bible that he's not going to bring again a global flood upon the earth. Anyone have a problem not understanding that? Everyone understands why there's not going to be another global flood on this earth. Based on God's covenant. And it's the same when God makes covenants to Israel or to anyone. He is going to come through on those covenants. It might take a long time, but he is going to come through on what he's promised to do. How does this relate to the church? Well, as I said, there are people that say that the covenants of God to Abraham, to Phineas to David and uh, through Jeremiah and others in the New Covenant, that these covenants, the Davidic Covenant as well, these covenants don't mean what they say and actually you spiritualize them and now that uh, God's dealing with the church, he's not dealing with uh, national Israel anymore. So what we do is we spiritualize these covenants and we give them to the church. The church is the new Israel and we're reigning now. That's the Davidic Covenant has been fulfilled in Christ, and we're the new people of God, okay? So that's the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled. We're spiritual priests of God, so that's the priestly covenant fulfilled. You see how it goes on? And what God actually said in those covenants is ignored. Specific land areas, Jerusalem, specific things that are to happen on specific people. Folks, if you put these specific things in the covenant oath, you have to perform that covenant. You have to. And God of all persons has to. Because if he doesn't, I mean, it's it's done, isn't it? You might as well just pack it all in and say, I don't know, if he can't keep his own covenants, what, how can I trust him? So that's what's at stake here. And I preface uh, our studies on the church um, with that strong statement. God has not forgotten his covenant oaths to Israel. But he's not dealing with Israel now. He's dealing with the church, the church. And by the way, we can, we can uh, get it wrong the other way. We can let the pendulum swing the other way so that there are ministries that focus not on the church but on Israel nowadays. Well, that's wrong-headed because God is dealing with the church now. He's going to deal with Israel again later on. So we have to have that balance. 
and just reading carefully the word of God helps us to have that balance but here we are we're, we're uh, now in this age of the church like I said starting in Acts chapter 2 and uh, we need to understand what's going on let's begin by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2 Paul says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified or set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And I'll extend it to verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What this passage is doing is it's saying that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, the, uh, the resurrected Christ, then you are part of the sanctified or set apart people of God from every place. Whether that's you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, whether you're from Africa or America or Asia, it doesn't matter. Okay, You, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior from your sins, you are incorporated by the Holy Spirit into what's called the church. Because the word church, or ecclesia, is the Greek term. That's where we get the term ecclesiastical from. The ecclesia, or church, what it means is a called out assembly. Okay, A called out assembly of people. So you and I are part of the called out people of God, the assembly of God. And that called out assembly is not just called out today, it's been being called out since the beginning of the church in the first century. And it will continue until Christ comes back, I believe, in the in the rapture. So... The church, therefore, is the people of God, constituted the people of God between the resurrection of of, uh, Jesus Christ and the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the return of Christ, I believe, at the rapture, the taking out of the church. And we'll we'll, uh, look at that uh, when we get to it. The church, as we will see, therefore is the only vehicle of salvation in the present age. The only vehicle of... You have to be, not in a church building, but you have to be incorporated by the Holy Spirit in his church. Paul uses a bunch of metaphors to describe this. One of them is, look at the middle of verse 2 there, in Christ. In Christ. To be in Christ doesn't mean that, uh, you know, Jesus in his physical body there has all of these other people in him. Okay, it means spiritually joined to him and the power of his new life in the resurrection. You're born again in your spirit because of your link to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
your body will be glorified and changed to be like Jesus' glorious body because of its union, its connection to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is that clear? And as we will see, there's a lot uh, to get through, not today, but uh, in this part of the series, the church is a post-resurrection reality. The church did not exist before the resurrection. How do I know that? Well, I'll prove it in uh, another sermon. But it's simply this. You're connected to the resurrection. And the church could not be connected to the resurrection before the resurrection. That would be silly, wouldn't it? So, we are therefore sanctified in Christ Jesus, with our connection to Christ Jesus, we are called to be saints, okay? So we're all saints. We don't have to go around with uh, these things over our head and, you know, light shining around us uh, to be saints. No. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're a saint, okay? That means you've been the word again it has to do with being separated separated from the world separated from satan and to god not just from something so you're set apart but to something as well to god paul will characterize this again in different ways because this is the way that he writes but one of the best ways he does it is saying that you've been taken out of Adam and the connection to Adam and you've been put into the new man who is Christ. Do you see? So you're not what you were. and Your old life has been kind of cast away as far as God is concerned. It needs to be cast away as far as you're concerned as well, if you're in Jesus. And now all things are new in Jesus Christ, okay? All of your sins have been forgiven. And you are a saint, a holy one in God's sight. Why? Because all of a sudden you became, you know, an incredibly righteous and wonderful human being? No. No. You're still a big rat bag, the same that you were before you trusted in Christ. But... You have now Christ's righteousness placed on you. And that's how God sees you. God sees you as a saint, a holy one. It's an extraordinary thing. But it's true. And so the church, obviously, should be a place where holiness is seen. It should be a place where the holiness of God is felt, at least to an ex- extent. We don't trust our feelings too, uh, too much because they can mislead us. But there must be something about the church, something about Christians that draws people to God. And if you are walking in fellowship with God, that will happen. Verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This greeting is repeated in every epistle of Paul. Uh, Slight variations. Galatians has it slightly different because it's really a more polemical book. But grace and peace 
are wished to you by the Almighty. When you read that, don't just pass over it. Think about it. God wishes you, greets you with grace, his grace and peace. You have peace with God if you've trusted in Christ. You may not have peace internally. That might be a different thing. We'll deal with that. We've dealt with it before. We'll deal with it again. That peace has to do with various things, but mainly it has to do with confession of your sin and trust that God's in control, not you. Okay? Dependence on God will bring you peace. And dying to yourself, which we uh, we covered earlier. But God wishes you, if you're a Christian, grace and peace. Well, I need grace because I mess up. So I'm very glad that God approaches me constantly in grace. And the one thing we search for is peace. The one thing that we need is peace, first of all, between us and God, so that God is not going to act as our judge at the end of our lives. So that's the first thing that I wanted to bring out about the church. Israel, presently, doesn't have that because it's in rebellion to God. Now, if you'll go over with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, I want to say something else here about the church, which is often forgotten. We'll actually start with verse 19, Ephesians chapter 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now what this is saying is that those in the church, though they are Gentiles, and Ephesians, of course, the Ephesus was a Gentile city, They are now brought into the family of God. Now, the first converts to Jesus were who? Jews, obviously. They were the first converts. The church was, was Jewish at the very beginning. But now moving on, the Gentiles have believed on him through the preaching of Paul and others. And they are included in what Paul describes here as the household of God. Again, that's just a met- another metaphor. It's like the church is a metaphor, a called out people. And we have a foundation upon which the church stands. Built, verse 20, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now the prophets there are not Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Daniel and others. These are New Testament prophets. New Testament prophets. Because there were prophets in the New Testament. Several of them are are, uh, described in the book of Acts. Agabus being one, uh, Philip being another. There are several that had this uh, prophetic gift. 
And the reason they had that prophetic gift is they didn't have a New Testament. Okay? So you had to have people who were given this ability by God to speak the word of God before we actually, they actually had it. Do you see? In the early part of the church. The reason that we know that these prophets are New Testament prophets, not the Old Testament prophets, is because they are connected, first of all, to the foundation of the apostles and also the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus and his death and his resurrection. So the church has a foundation. The foundation is apostles and prophets. So anyone who claims to be an apostle or a prophet today, you know automatically they're lying. How? Because the apostles and prophets form the foundation of the church. You see? With Jesus Christ, again, also being the cornerstone upon which the whole edifice is built. That happened nearly 2,000 years ago. So nobody can be a prophet or an apostle today. They can claim to be. They can claim to be, and people do make claims. They might even believe it themselves. Some people believe they're Napoleon. That doesn't make them Napoleon. No, we must understand what the Bible says. The Bible says that the church has a foundation, and it's a good foundation that we're built on. It's not an idea of a bunch of bishops in funny fish hats getting together and say, oh, what we're going to do and what we're going to call it, yes? That's the way that unbelievers often think about the church. A bunch of people in, in gaudy robes getting together, you know, with their golden maces and so on, sitting together in these enclaves, dreaming up this great ecclesiastical machine called the church. I mean, unfortunately, it went that way later on, a few hundred years afterwards. But that wasn't the true church. That wasn't the beginning of things. The true church is much more simple than that. It's devised by God, and its foundation is spiritual. Its foundation is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, particularly the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, those that connected to it through belief in the death of Christ for them, and then the teaching particularly of the apostles or what we have now of the teaching of the apostles which is our New Testament do you see so this verse tells us that the church is on a solid foundation Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone for that uh, building and also tells us by implication that because now we have the words of Christ and we have the words of the apostles in our New Testament, we don't need any extra revelation. We have what we need. God has given it to us. These are the foundational documents of the church. Some people say, well, it's not enough. To which I reply, Well, you need to read and study more then, don't you? Because obviously you haven't got it. Obviously you are not paying attention to what God's saying here. You're reading it superficially, and so you're letting your emotions wander and leave you. 
There are people who give their, oh, their whole lives to studying the New Testament and they still, it's still a wondrous book to them. It's more than enough for us. We need to just spend time in it. And then, knowing that we're sanctified, separated in Jesus Christ, and that we're built on this great foundation, of course, we're supposed to grow. The church is supposed to grow. It's not supposed to just be a flat foundation. It's supposed to be something that's built on the foundation. And Paul, further, it's not verses 31 and 32, by the way. It's, yeah, no, it's not something wrong with your Bible, something wrong with me, okay? Uh, it's verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is not physical language, because he's not speaking about physical, you know, he's not talking about a physical foundation, is he? Okay? And so he's not talking about a physical building here. He's talking about a spiritually put together building. The church is spiritual. This is a church building. Okay? Where the church meets. In many countries in the world, they don't have church buildings, but the church meets. Maybe under a tree or in a cave or somewhere like that. And our idea is to grow into a holy temple in the Lord. Why holy? Well, because God is holy. Why holy? Well, because we are saints. We're supposed to be holy people. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. In the spirit. The central place of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in the church. It's not something that we do religiously. The church is not just something that we go to and go through a bunch of, you know, bows and liturgy and so on. And not not necessarily uh, all liturgy is bad. But it's not just a place for religious repetition with no heart in it, with no spirituality in it. We are supposed to be a spiritual people, a people who can open ourselves up to the influence of the Holy Spirit under the guidance of his word. Now, for many churches today... That's not what they are. Many churches today are places of entertainment. They are places of affirmation. They are places where basically God meets your felt needs. Let me quickly address that. Growing together in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit under his word obliterates 
your felt needs. God couldn't care less about your felt needs. He couldn't care less about affirming you. And that might be shocking to to some of you because of the culture that we live in. God could not care less about affirming you or your felt needs. And he certainly is not for entertaining you. God's not in the entertainment business. So what is the modern church doing? What's happened to the modern church? Well, they've become so concerned with a superficial understanding of what the church is that they kind of change what it is to suit that superficial understanding. And all of a sudden, we're getting false converts. All of a sudden, we're getting uh, Christians acting in a very worldly way with worldly ideas of how they should be. There's no holiness. There's no, um, there's no awe. And God just seems to be this uh, dispensing machine who just only wants to bless you. Well, God does want to bless you. But some of that blessing might be painful. Some of that blessing might be difficult to get to. You and I have been set apart. And the problem with being set apart is we're still in the world. And we, unless you feel that tension... You don't understand what it is to be in the church. You are not supposed to be thinking like the world. You are not supposed to be desiring like the world. You are not supposed to be patting yourself on the back like the world does. You get your affirmation not from who you are, but through who your Savior is. Do you see? You are more you when you focus not on you, but on him. Does anyone really think that God affirms you? I hope he doesn't affirm me. I don't affirm me. I struggle with me. I want to be like the Apostle Paul, in Christ. I want to be seen in him. I want to be connected by thought and heart and deed to the Holy Spirit. And that's full-time work. That's hard work. So this is what the church is. I mean, it's not the only thing that the church is. This is the church of God introduced part one, notice. But this is a beginning study in what we're supposed to be. There are all kinds of ideas about the church, but if we just go back to what the Bible says about what the church is supposed to be, suddenly these ideas that many modern churches have about what their job is disappear. They seem to be superficial. They seem to be unimportant. 
God has made it very simple. Do you want to be part of the church, holy, transformed by the renewing of your mind through God's word? That's really what the Bible, what the church is all about. You come here, hopefully, to hear something decent from me or from Steve. And hopefully I've got that from the Bible, which is the word of God. And if I haven't, it's a load of rubbish and you might as well not show up. I want to bring the word of God to you so that you can have your mind changed by it. And in doing so, be the church. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that we all struggle in and of ourselves. We are not what we're supposed to be. And so we need grace. But we also need to know what we're supposed to be. We need to always acknowledge the fact that you have called us to be separate. Not turning our noses to unchurched people, but being what you want us to be in the midst of a world that rejects you. If we can't do that, Lord, how are people going to be attracted to you? And so help us, Lord, bless us this week as we strive to be what we've called to be. Help me, help everyone else to have this basic understanding of what we're about. And we'll give you the thanks in the name of our Savior. Amen.